to worship. All right. So that was good. Are we warmed up yet? Uh, you know, you don't want to manufacture that. You know, you don't want to fake that, that worshiping. But, you know, I, I can't help but get caught up in that and, and think about the day, you know, the day when your faith will no longer be, will be by sight. I mean, the day that you'll be in the presence of the living God. And uh, it's hard not to get excited about that, isn't it? We were talking and, uh, you know, our <laughs> part of our prayer as Christians is we don't forget the joy of the Lord, you know. It's so easy to get, get all stuck in the, you know, the formality and the ritual and the habits and, and all the trappings that, that it seems that when Christ came, he was so offended by, offended by with the religious leaders of the day. And, and uh, there's no out, just outpouring of joy. There was none of that kind of just visceral reaction to the, the living Christ uh, who was walking among them. And, and uh, I pray we don't get there. I pray that we can always just, you know, sample that, taste it, and wait for it, long for it, um, that we don't lose our joy. Let's pray together today. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to come and gather again to open your word, Lord, and, uh, and to learn and to be instructed and to be shaped and formed and uh, Lord, that like James says, you know, that we'd be doers of the word, not just hearers, not just, not just speaking the words, Lord, but, but putting feet to our faith. And uh, your word is true and right and holy and just, and it's, it's for our comfort and for our salvation. And it comes, Lord, to instruct us. And we pray today that we would have spirits to be instructed, that we wouldn't come today uh, with all the answers, Lord. We would come with all the questions and just lay them at your feet, knowing that you are our God and we are not. And... Uh, what an honor it is just to be present with you, to be walking, journeying, and growing with you, Lord, just like the early disciples did. What an amazing testimony to your faithfulness to us. Uh, remember us, Lord, and that's, that's what we ask, you know, that we're not, we're not forgotten, that we might feel that we're in a place where we aren't uh, remembered anymore. But, Lord, help us to remember the call upon your people. And today we, we said that, you know, you're welcome here, Lord, but we know you're present. We know that if we can't see you, it's not that you're not here, it's that we don't have the eyes on. And right now, while we pray by the power of your Spirit, we would have the eyes on, that we would know and see and, and believe, and, and, uh, and you would be glorified. What an amazing God. We thank you and give you all these prayers, all the hurts, all the struggles. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I was thinking about this idea of journey, you know, and uh, it, 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 we were talking, we had opportunity to talk to some folks about where we're at, Family Bible Church is at. I'm not doing any of that stuff, so. Okay, here we go. And, um, and, and uh, where we're at and, and what we're doing. And, you know, I was, I was struck this week because we had to, we had to um, sometimes, sometimes you have to articulate why you believe what you believe. You know, we did a little bit of that here with the uh, dedication this morning. But it's a weird thing to hear yourself saying things and then go like, ah, that's, well, that's right, you know. That's why I, I, I've forgotten why I did that stuff. I, I forgot why I believed that way. That, that's right. And um, it's a great opportunity to remember the journey. And, and uh, what we talked about with uh, Nathan and Jennifer up here earlier, it's called Shema. 
And uh, it's remember, Shema Israel, remember, or hear, O Israel, remember who you are. And, and this whole story, we've been talking about Nehemiah, uh, for those of you who haven't been with us on this journey, uh, and we've been talking about Nehemiah for a while now. And uh, Jerusalem, this holy city that was just totally um, destroyed, and these people living in squalor were forgetting that they were the chosen people of God. And, uh, and so today we want to be reminded of that story, but then also reminded of our story, reminded of those places in our lives that we've forgotten that we're God's people, you know, God's chosen people, God's holy people, you know, and that's a crazy, crazy thought. And if you're not uncomfortable being there, if you're not uncomfortable saying that, then, then I'm not sure, I, I'm very uncomfortable saying that, chosen one. That's crazy talk, right? But it clearly says in the scriptures that God chose us before he chose him. Our whole life is a response to, to the gospel of Jesus Christ that's been loving us from the beginning. And I say that because it's interesting because as a body, we are on a unique journey here at Family Bible Church, right? I mean, every expression of faith we see in town with these, the, if you go into any church in town, you listen to their story. It's an amazing story. And you know, it's so easy to forget where you've been. And it's so easy to forget where you're headed, right? And that's the problem. And Nehemiah has been very instructive in that, in that kind of uh, light of bringing about the remembrance of who we are and where we're going to the glory of God. And so this is what we're talking about. But it's not unique to us, but it is unique to us. And that's interesting. This all reminds me of, a, of a, an encounter I had. I, I had the opportunity to worship at another body um, in, in uh, North St. Louis. This is, this is a small church called Friendly Temple. And uh, they, have this, they, they took us on this tour. We went there, not during their standard worship hours. We went there, and we kind of talked to the church secretary, which, by the way, if you want to know the truth about anything, just go talk to the church secretary because <laughs> they'll know. <laughs> and she took us on a tour, a guided tour of the facility. And, uh, and she was talking about, you know, the first pastor who founded the church and, and the early struggles and then the, kind of the struggles of handing off the pastorate and what happened with that stuff. And she's telling all these great stories about their faith journey as a community. And I was struck by it. And we were, we were walking along, and, and they, we, they, she kept saying, but they had this amazing facility, right? And we have this amazing facility, you know, that, that we rent from the district. <laughs> but that's okay, because God put it here for us to use. By the way, a little caveat. Do you ever think about blessing this joint, you know? Right now the kids are out. Man, summer's going to kill us, right? The parents in the room. I'm always reminded of that when we're here, that we are worshiping in the place where our, our kids are learning five days a week. Um, but anyway, so she, we're on this tour of this facility, and it's this, uh, she's telling these stories, and then, she, and then she starts to point out in the new, the new building that they had, she took us to the, where we worshiped in the older sanctuary, she came into the new building, and it was this, this old industrial building they had renovated, and um, they had bought it, it was dilapidated and all this, but someone had the foresight to go around after they bought the building at a discount, discount price, because they were going to knock it down, it was just in shambles, much like Nehemiah's situation, right? And they took uh, a camera and shot a ton of pictures. Now, I say they must have shot a ton, a ton, a ton of pictures because there's no way they could have had the angles they had if someone hadn't walked around and spent probably a day just taking pictures of this joint when it was just in shambles, destroyed. And um, she started to go up to these rooms, these, these amazing rooms, you know, the these, these, uh, all the love they've been putting in this building. They had a huge atrium. They had all this stuff. And on the doorposts, like kind of where these number signs are here, on the doorposts right next to every door, every single door in the building, there was a picture on the wall. And it was a black and white picture 
of the building before they had moved in, right? And you could see the angles. If you stood back from the door, you could tell that the things lined up. That was the corner. And, oh, look, and there was pigeons, right? And there were broken glass, and there was this, this junk everywhere and just horrible, horrible conditions. And, and so she showed us that she says, now you can see here's what it looked like before, and then now this is it. And she'd open it up, and we were like, wow, that's cool. In the next room, and she'd say, now let's see this picture. Now this is it. And she'd open it up. And she kept doing this room after room, and, and I started thinking, what in the, what's the deal with these pictures, you know? And so uh, I asked her, I said, what, what is the deal with all these pictures you guys took? And she said, because we decided we never wanted to forget where God had done for us. That we never wanted to forget. And I'll tell you how serious they were. You know, how do you hang up pictures at home? How do you hang up pictures? I, I put a little tack thing in the wall and kind of just delicately, gingerly put them over the little tack thing, right? They had taken these big decking screws and they had screwed them right through the picture frames, right to the wall. You couldn't take the, you couldn't move those pictures before you could move the building, you know? She was so passionate that they should never, ever forget where they had been brought from, the work that God had, been, had done among them. And this is very much where Nehemiah has been. This, this, this whole journey with Nehemiah, we had the privilege of going back to the beginning and seeing, and why am I talking about all this stuff? Because this week is a unique week for Nehemiah and the crew, right? We've been talking about all the stuff leading up to this week, but this week, something profound happens this week. If you've been reading ahead, you'll know. But I want to go back before, because I want to real quick remember, does it feel like we've been talking about Nehemiah forever yet? Anybody else feel that way? Wow, what a journey we've been on with Nehemiah. And I want to remember that Nehemiah started out in a foreign land, way, way, way away from where the work was to be done. And God had put in him this passion, this burden for this, this thing that God wanted done, and Nehemiah knew wasn't right, and that's in chapter 1. And he, and he just got sick about it. And we remember the prayerfulness of Nehemiah. We remember this holy man of God who is just destroyed because of the conditions of, of uh, Jerusalem. And he waits upon God, and then he has this amazing opportunity, right, which is so beautiful because it comes from not from some holy place, not from some, it comes from the secular government. It comes from this king who he's serving, and he gets this opportunity, and he doesn't miss a beat, and he has this plan, and he rolls over to Jerusalem because of the grace of God manifests through this king he was serving. And here he is, he's, he's, he gets to Jerusalem, he inspects the walls, and you remember all this story about how the walls were down, the people, you know, he must, when he heard about it in, in uh, Persia, he must have thought, oh, I and mean, he was sick to his stomach, right? But when he saw it, when he saw it with his own eyes, I wonder how he felt about it when he, when he showed up, and he saw it was all true. A man who had a personal relationship with the living God saw the way God's people were living. And he did the inspections, and he, and, he, and he went around, you know, and we hear those stories about how he, he uh, you know, had these beautiful moments where he would uh, entice people into serving God. He, he would remind them. He would tell them he was prophetic in that way of being prophetic that you speak the obvious truth that everyone already knows. And then people responded, which is the miracle. And so we have this amazing story that Nehemiah tells us. 
But there's something else that goes on with Nehemiah because it's not a storybook story necessarily. It's not, a, it's not this neat and tidy text because then we have these weird things that flare up and, and Nehemiah gets distracted. And we talked about this opposition a couple weeks ago, how people were directly opposed to what Nehemiah wanted to do there, what God was calling Nehemiah to do. It's hard to believe sometimes that there might be someone opposed to the work of God. Do you have a hard time believing that? No. That's amazing. I mean, I, I, I find it so hard to believe because I, who stands in the way of the living God? Who, who is that fool? That's me sometimes, isn't it? Have you ever been in one of those meetings, by the way? Have you ever been in one of those meetings where you realize that you're the problem? Man, that's a place to be as a Christian. Well, I tell you, because God can use that, Right? You, you've been at me where you're like, oh, no, this is wrong, girl, this is so-and-so's, duh. and all of a sudden you're, God starts saying, hey, you got to get out of the way, man. But those people who were directly opposing the work of God, I, I still have a hard time believing that. I still have a hard time believing that. I believe that maybe when, they don't, when they're opposing it, they don't yet understand the work. They, don't yet, they haven't been convinced. They haven't, they haven't seen the truth. God hasn't spoken to them yet, and you pray for that. But the truth is that in this text, it says there are those who would never be part of the work and were never included in the work and had no hope of it. And that's ridiculous to me, this opposition of God's work. And then we talked about this internal opposition, this internal resistance to change, these things that we, and that's maybe where we sit sometimes too, right? Where we're just like, ah, I don't think I want to go that way, you know? And here, here these folks were, they were doing the work and they were being blessed by God. They were doing the work of God. It was clear to Nehemiah what was going on, but then they still had these little internal struggles going on. Nothing wrong with that, but they were steadfast in their work. And this is what we're going to try to do today. We're going to try to celebrate some of God's success. Because it's so easy, I think. We were talking this week. I was talking to somebody, and they said, you know, uh, how's your week going? I said, man, they're just, you ever feel that way? They're just popping by. You know, how many of you are long-term planners? You can raise your hand. It's okay. Nobody's, there you go. Got a couple of them. How many of you have no idea what a long-term plan is? <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the most frustrating things as a, as a not long-term planner, I, you know, you have that moment where someone says, uh, what are you going to do in five years? And you're like, five years is so far away. <laughs> and then all of a sudden someone goes, you know, it was five years ago that I talked to you about this and you haven't done anything. What? Long-term planners, man. It's an amazing thing. But, but we have this opportunity to celebrate God's successes and uh, to not forget where God is bringing it. I'm, I'm very much a fan of the wandering, though. i got to be honest with you, you know, because I, I know some folks who have to know where they're going to end up before they'll take a step on the journey. I'm very much a fan of the whole journeying as you're going, but being corrective all the time about where you're heading, right? Always, like I said, eye on the horizon, but then, always, but then you know, taking that time that you're going to make some missteps along the way. And uh, you might not know where you're going, which is a scary thing. Biblical models for this stuff. But Nehemiah seemed to be a man of singular vision. That's what we hear in the text, right? This guy knew, and he knew that he knew what was supposed to happen. And nothing was going to stop him from doing that work. And he responded sometimes with that kind of outrage and prayer against people, which was amazing. And then other times with grace and teaching and humility, where he would kind of love people to continue the work. He kind of was a fully rounded uh, leader, but he always had a singular vision for what was going to happen. And that's where we're at today. Turn with you, if you would, to, to chapter 6 of Nehemiah, verse 17, if you're not already there. 
or verse uh, 15, if you're not right there, let's read this. Um, this is what it says on, I think that page number is right, 338. I'm not 100% sure. But uh, this is what it, it says here. It says, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. And I just want to stop right there. Because this journey that Nehemiah took from the palace in Persia to the seat in Jerusalem is unbelievable. And the fact that he got there and people started to do the work with him is unbelievable. And so much of the story has been just amazing and instructive in how it, it forms who Nehemiah was, but then instructs us on who we should be as we pursue Jesus, as we follow the living God. And it says here, this most incredible statement, it's such a little thing, and it's easy to roll right past it, but the wall was completed in 20, the 25th of Elul in 52 days, 52 days. That's an amazing thing. I want you to hear again. See, this is, this is that aha, aha moment, you know. I want you to hear again from chapter 4 what Sambalet had said when he was leveling accusations against Nehemiah and the workers of the wall. This is what he was saying. What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from heaps of rubble burned as they are? This is what Nehemiah had put up with all this time. And I want to ask you a question. How do you think Nehemiah felt on the 52nd day when God had finished his work. Whew. That must have been an amazing moment for Nehemiah. 52 days. Will you finish the work in a day? No. 52. He was on path. He was on track. He was not going to waver. And he built this wall, this thing that God had called him to do. And listen to what it says. When all our enemies heard about this, and all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work that we had done had been done with the help of God. And I want to spend a minute here because the text isn't quite as expressive as I'd like it to be here because actually what it says is when all the enemies heard the wall was finished and when all the enemies who surrounded Jerusalem saw the wall with their eyes, you see, that's when they were disheartened. That's whenever they just crumbled, the enemies of the work of God. You remember they were threatening war against Israel. They were threatening to tear the place down. They were sending these open letters, kind of making these veiled threats against the work. Anything, anything to stop it. But when the enemies heard that it was finished and they saw with their eyes that it was done, they lost their self-confidence, it says. They just crumbled in their presence. Now, isn't it amazing that they seem to recognize the very enemies Nehemiah blames them? Now, who knows? Did they really see that? Did they really see that work as being the work of God? Because that would take an awfully uh, amazing position of humility. Because these guys have been flat out against this wall from the get-go. They're enemies of the work. And if they were to admit at the end that, oh my gosh, God did this, that's an amazing statement to make. Nehemiah makes it that they saw the work was done with the help of God. Now, this is a point in your life where if, if you've never repented of anything ever before, this is the time you're going to repent, right? If you get to the place where you've been obstinate the entire time, and then you see it, and you hear it, and you go, oh, I was wrong. My prayer for people outside the wall is that that was the response to the living God, that they would repent and say, oh, I was wrong.
Clearly, you're with these people. I was wrong. This is where they are. This is what they see, and they are completely destroyed because of the realization that God had helped. Now, I'm going to read on through here a little bit, and I want to talk about this passage. But those are the main two verses that I wanted you to hear today. But I want to read on a little because we're going to talk about some other things. This work isn't done yet for Nehemiah, but the wall is up. And what an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. And I just want to celebrate God's success a little bit today on that. By the way, an amazing thing I noticed this week as I was preparing to, to talk about this this morning is how many weeks have we been in Nehemiah? Does anybody know? I'm probably the only one that would know, right? Because, I mean, you know, he's thinking about that stuff. Seven weeks. Seven sevens. Forty-nine. Just, wow. So if you think about, for a real tangible reference of how long it took him to, to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, which was huge, a huge undertaking, from the time we started talking about Nehemiah to now, they had finished the wall. Block by block, person by person. All the struggles, all the... All the internal and external, everything that had gone against the wall and for the wall, all the blessings. There must have been so many blessings at the wall when you're working. I, I can't even imagine how they felt seeing each other hand in hand again. Remember locking arms, locking strength for the first time to do something that God was calling them to, get, to do. Seven weeks in this series, 49 days, 52 days, the wall's finished. I just want to point that out. And this is what I want to read on here a little bit. It says, So also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah. This Tobiah guy was hanging out with Sambal. You'll remember him, right? And replies to Tobiah kept coming from them. For many in Judah were under the oath to him. Now check this out. Since he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, son of Arah, and his son Jehonan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. The deal is that these, Tobiah, remember Tobiah was the one who was saying he had a rightful claim to Jerusalem. He had married a Jew as a, his wife, taken a Jew as his wife, and his son had taken a Jew as a Hebrew as his wife. And so he is, he's still in, you know, writing letters to the nobles in Judah, and they're under obligation to him because he's part of the family in some way. And this is an interesting story because it's not over yet for, uh, for Tobiah nor for Nehemiah. Uh, but moreover, they kept reporting. This is what Nehemiah says. Even more than that, they kept telling me his good deeds and then telling him what I said to them. So there's lots of little kind of scuttle going on here, right? And Tobias sent letters to intimidate me. Now, I just wanted to read that because it's in the text. And I want to point out, if you want to read more about what happens with Tobias' situation, chapter 13 is where it's going to all finalize for Tobiah. But I just want to point that out, that it's in there. And I want to read on here. 7 verse 1 says, After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. And I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. And I want you to look at the motivation for putting people in these positions. Because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. If there's been one thing in this whole journey through the book of Nehemiah that I've seen, it's that Nehemiah respected God more than anything else in his life. And this makes sense, Right? I mean, if we're going to be following the living God, we're going to say, yes, we have more respect for God than the men in our lives, the women in our lives, the people in our lives. We have much more. Yes, Lord, more respect. The trouble is, for most of us, we don't live our lives that way. We don't live our lives in such a way that we truly fear the living God. We don't live our lives in a way that we believe that more than what anyone sees us do, it's more important that we know God is seeing what we're doing. Do you hear what I'm saying? I think... If we could become to a fundamental conviction as followers of Jesus that God is always with us. We say that like it's a God is always with us, like a friend, always with us. But God is always with us. 
It says, all the things done in darkness we brought to light. If our, lives were, if our lives were lived in a manner that we actually believed that, that we actually respected the holy God, way more than we respect what other people saw of us, our lives would change. We would be transformed by that experience. And this is what uh, Nehemiah does best, and this is how he appoints leaders, you know. He says, they feared God more than most men do. These guys were people of integrity. You know what that means? It means wholeness, oneness, always the same. I like to think if, it's like if it was a board. You ever seen those, um, pla- those little uh, trim boards? At, you can get at um, Ace Hardware or Home Depot. They're really pretty, the oak ones, right? Those solid wood ones, and then you've got to stain them and all that, you know. But if you've been in there, have you seen those ones that are made out of, uh, like, styrofoam? And they're wrapped in, like, laminate paper, <laughs> you know? And uh, they look real. They look the part. They would look good on the wall. But, you know, if you took a saw and you cut it in half, it's different. It's not the same. And these guys at Nehemiah appointed... To, to man the gates, to man the wall. These guys that he put in charge were men that if you cut their lives right in half, if, we, if our greatest fears became known and everyone saw every dark part of our lives, it would be the same all the way through. You hear what I'm saying? All the way through. That's people of integrity. And that's what Nehemiah was looking for. And integrity came from fearing God. And that's where we can get our integrity in our lives. It's not what you do in the public square that matters. It's what you do in your closet that matters right? And that's the truth. Nehemiah says, I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, (laughs) and the gatekeepers are still on duty. Uh, Have them shut the doors and bar them, you know, and also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their houses. And so here he's putting people by the wall to guard the wall, you know. The wall work is done, but they're going to maintain it. We talked a few weeks ago about what the wall was about. And here's some of the ideas you guys brought out. You said it was about defense, about boundaries, control, holiness we talked about, separation, uh, safety, authority, these things. But what's the most amazing thing to me as well about the wall, and this might go like, well, duh, you know, but they put gates in the walls, right? And, that, and of course they put gates in the walls. Why do you put a gate in the wall? Yes, you can get in and out, you know. I mean, what, I'll tell you why I mention this. Because far too many Christians build their walls with no gates, you know. You just stack up the blocks, and then you go, I can't ever get out of here. I'm safe, but I can't change the world. I can't be, I mean, there's nothing you can do from behind the wall. But they put in these gates, and, and uh, they man the gates. And he starts to give instructions, you see. And this whole wall thing becomes an issue of boundaries, like we talked about. But an issue of being able to choose what you let in and when you go out. Right? That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Uh, we talk about these. I don't have my, my oh, it's back here in my back pocket. You know, we talk about these, um, these little devices here. Cell phones, Right? Uh, we talk about the internet is everywhere, you know, 24-7. We're always connected, you know. This stuff will destroy our lives. It will absolutely destroy our lives. We talk about uh, uh, the internet that's on high speed at our house all the time, right? And, and uh, oh, it's great. Information at your fingertips. But, but it's, it's like this pipeline right into your living room. 
It's a scary thing. And one of my professors at Greenville College told me, she said, uh, I screen my calls, so if you call me and I don't answer, I, I might just be listening to what you need to talk to me about, and uh, I'll call you back. And we were like, what? Are you kidding me? To kids who answer the phone no matter where they are, <laughs> we were talking, we did a wedding, I did a wedding a couple weeks ago, and somebody answered their phone in the middle of the wedding and then talked for like almost the whole service. What? Life without boundaries will kill you. And this, this people of Jerusalem, I very much see in the same way. Their lives were overrun. And like I said, the enemies knew it. They loved it that way. Just keep your phone on. Just keep plugged in. Just keep, you didn't check your email for a day. The world could have come to an end. Well, all I'm saying is maybe we should be discerning about the gates. Maybe we should be intentional about what we let in. And then about when we go out. You know, let's leave. Let's go do something once the walls are up. These are the, this is what the gate, the establishment of the gates is about and this, this whole idea of the wall. It gives the people of God protection to be faithful, to be holy, to be just, but then it also gives them opportunity to still intermix, still intermingle. People still come in and get to experience Jerusalem, but it's this different place. Can you imagine how different it would be? If you'd walked in there before the gates were down, you could just come and go as you please. You'd think, man, ultimate freedom, right? But I bet when that wall was up, you felt different when you were invited to come through the gate at Jerusalem. In every way, I bet it was a different experience. And this is what Nehemiah says. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. And there's a lesson there too. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. And so my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. And I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. And he goes through the whole genealogy. Who came back first? But this idea that the kingdom of God, we talked about that this morning when Jesus was in the small group, we're talking about when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. You know, the kingdom is a big place. There's lots of room. All the houses aren't built yet. That's what Nehemiah said. He realized when he got the wall, there was plenty of room for more houses. There was plenty of room to invite people to come in and live differently. And this is what he did. One of the, a couple of things, if you didn't get one of these, I hope you have one of these, and I hope you've been engaging already with this. Uh, th this is our, your engagement space, you know. And uh, at the bottom, there's lots of stuff. But one of the things that we put on there this week, and I wanted to think through this a little bit as a, as a group, we put on there, ask God to reveal possibilities in an impossible situation. Because I'm sure there were times when this wall was being built that, that, that when the oppression was coming, that, that other people, and maybe even Nehemiah, would have thought, we'll never get this done. There's no way we're going to get this wall built. The enemies were mocking them, remember. People were whispering in their ears, what are you doing? Where are these impossible situations in your life? I really want to spend some time thinking about that. Where are those places in your life you think, no good can come from this? You feel trapped. This is an impossible situation. I can't possibly get out of this on my own. You might be right. I was thinking about some of the, the situations that we hear of every day, you know. Uh, we heard, did you hear the news this week about the, the girls who got pregnant, you know? They did it on purpose. 
<laughs> but, but how many girls have done that and not done it on purpose? And that young girl and that young man are looking at this wall before them and saying, oh, this is impossible to get out of. No good can come from this. Oh, it's doom and gloom. All is lost. It's impossible. I thought about marriages where people are in and, and they don't know how to relate to each other anymore and they feel that death, they feel that loss of the person who they're sleeping with, who they're living with, and everyone knows it. And they cry out and they go, oh, it's impossible to do this. There's no way out of this. Nothing good can come from it. Just a monotony of life, the clicking by of the weeks, the months, the years. There's something that happens to us, right, when we get up middle age and we start to freak out a little bit, you know. What's going on with our lives? This is impossible. This is where we live in this place of impossibilities. I think about seeing your parents struggling. Maybe it's like a, a divorce. Maybe it's just life, struggles in life. The parents are getting older. Maybe you're a young person, very young, and you see your parents fighting and you go, that's not right. This is impossible. What good can come from this? Or this is the one for me now, right? Because I have three small children. And, and if, you know, I'm sure this is not... But I hear these stories. We, we always thought if you got your kids to 18 and they were alive, success. <laughs> you know? And we hear these stories that parents are telling us, oh, my kid's 26 and oh, I hurt from them so much. I don't know what to do anymore. It's impossible. And you have these aches for your children. We talked earlier about coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You ache for your children. Oh, that they would believe, that they could see it. Lord, that you would reveal yourself to them. And we ache, but we don't see possibilities. And I'm sure there were times where the builders of the wall saw the situation and said, this is impossible their enemies were surely telling them, this is impossible. But the difference is, as followers, as believers, as pursuers of the living God, that we know all things are possible with God. And if you forget, look at your life. Remember what God has done for you. Because the impossibilities that we see are the possibilities for God to work. And that's my encouragement for you today, that if you're in that place of impossibility and you say, oh, we can't, I can't go on, there's nothing good, I'm broken, I'm flawed, or this is a situation I can't deal with anymore, and we're serious about this as a church because we don't like to say we're there, but if you're there today, I want you to be honest before the living God about that and then let God show you the possibilities. This is his work, his work among us. Let God show you what's possible in the impossible situation. Never forget, never, ever, ever forget what God has done. We say, said it earlier, Shema Israel. We talked about from, from uh, Genesis, when God created man and woman, he said it's very good. Something is joyous. Something's exciting about our lives, but we get caught up in the muck of it. We get caught up in this kind of, this, this impassibility this inability to move forward. 
One way we can do this, practical way we can do this. Olivia has taken an affection to photo albums. It's terrifying to us because she gets them out and she pulls them out of the little plastic that Chris has put them in and she gets fingerprints all over them and drags them over the house and she stacks them out of order, which bothers me. And, and now the Florida vacation's mixed in with, you know, some Christmas celebration, and you just go, what? oh, Olivia, look at the mess you made. But one of the great ways that you can remember God's mercy and grace in your life is through photo albums. If you've been gifted enough to have someone go around like that lady at the, at the Friendly Temple taking pictures, man, later on you go, wow. Let's never forget what God has brought us out of. I remember when we were young and stupid. <laughs> and now we're just older. <laughs> no, I remember. Boy, share that story. I heard someone this week say about a young Christian who is struggling. They don't even know it. And this young Christian is struggling because they feel like they have all this, this passion for Christ and no one understands them. And this older person said, I look at them and I remember being that way. And my heart broke because I thought, why don't you go tell them that? And don't tell them in a way that's going to discourage them from, from, from pursuing Christ with zeal. But go over and get excited and say, wow, I remember that. How cool is it to see it in someone else? What have we forgotten? I remember when we were young and broke. Do you remember that? Do you remember when you were newlywed? We talked somebody about this week, about the first year of marriage. Do you remember that? Do you remember these times in your life where it was impossible to move forward, but God, God has brought us through it? I remember when I was at that impasse with my spouse. But here we are. God brought us through it. And, and then we move through this life, and we talk about all these things, and we, we, we try to see this practicality. But I remember, church, a time in my life when I was so lost, so beyond help, that it wouldn't matter who was with me because I did not know the living God. Do you remember? Do you remember the desperation of that moment? May we never forget Never forget the mercy and the grace of God. Matthew, this is the memory verse this week. Jesus is talking to the disciples about salvation. And this guy comes up who's kept all the laws. And, God, and Jesus says to him, all you have to do is give away everything you own and follow me. That's all you have to do. And the guy goes away sad. And the disciples freak out. Because we talked about it this, this day. They were just a motley crew. They are just a bunch of fishermen. And this dude who comes riding in, who has everything together, has to ride away sad because he can't be saved. And they go, Lord, how can we possibly be saved? And Jesus' response is this. With man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's our testimony, church. Our testimony about Jesus Christ in our lives. Our testimony in the valley of despair. Our testimony at the peak of the mountain. I'm not sure which of those journeys you're on right now, where you're at, but your testimony should be the same. All things are possible 
Paul says, all things are possible through Christ who strengthens me. This is the witness that Jesus was to us. This is our belief in the atonement. And I want to spend just a minute, we talked about baptism earlier, but I want to explain in just a second what we believe because it's such a, 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 a fundamental belief that we have. No one, no one can make us right with God but God, right? And this is the witness of Jesus Christ on this earth. He came fully God and fully man, and he did not, you know, bring in his glory, his splendor, but he came humbly. He came with this kind of teaching us and drawing us along. He comes in mercy and in grace. Someone reminded us this morning, he comes in subtle ways. He doesn't come as an angry person to us. We see Jesus angry with religious people. It reminds me of the way Nehemiah dealt with the enemies. You know, he, he kind of prayed against them and he got angry with them, but then internally he was kind of shepherding people along. This is Jesus as he comes to save us. Graceful, merciful, holy and just. But I don't want you to believe for a minute, and I don't think any of us who are professing Christians can believe for a minute that there's any hope besides Jesus Christ for us. There's no hope for me. There's no hope for you. And there's no hope for the world. Save Jesus Christ. Do you hear what I'm saying? We get caught up in it, right? I'm doing good. I'm, I'm okay. I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. But that's not the testimony that we have in Jesus Christ. So let us be honest about it. This wall that Nehemiah has built has given the people of Jerusalem a place that they can breathe again. And many times, as a follower of Jesus Christ, when you come and you receive him for the first time, and you are that guy outside the wall, you're the guy saying, this is wrong, this is not it, and you repent of your sins and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time in your life, it's like the newborn baby, right? <gasps> I can breathe. It's amazing. And you realize you're in a space where this wall has been put around you and you're protected but you're not left there. You're not left there behind this wall of safety. You're, you're challenged to grow in your faith. And this is what we do, and it's called discipleship. And Jesus Christ loves you too much to leave you at the foot of the cross, thanking him because that's where we belong, because he is, but he is calling us forward on a journey, and I pray you're on that journey today. And so today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to respond to the living God today. And I hope you're alive. Are you alive today? Wait a minute. Are you alive today? I mean, come on, I feel like sometimes as Christians, we can't have joy to save our lives, right? I mean, can we have a little fun? I'm saying, Jesus Christ has come to save you. He's come to save me. He's come to save the whole world, and we're so bored with it. Come on. Never forget what God has done for you. And if you're in that, that bottom pit spot, Jesus Christ is there with you. And he's covering you like this, and he's saying, breathe breathe. And when you stand up and you begin to breathe, you can celebrate. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to celebrate all that Christ has done for us. So, if you remember what God has done for you, let us stand up today.